The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Psalm 135, I'll read verses 1 through 7. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, you that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for he is gracious. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. There are two assumptions that lie as foundations beneath the present new series on the pleasures of God. Assumption number one is that the worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. You apply that to God and you can say, that the worth and excellency of God's soul or His character is measured by the objects of His delight or His love. The measure of God's dignity is what He delights in. His pleasures are the pointers toward the preciousness of his character, the greatness of his excellence is shown in what he enjoys. That's assumption number one. If you want to see the worth and excellency of God, set your mind's eye upon those things in which he delights. Assumption number two is that if we succeed in seeing the worth and the excellency of God in His pleasures, we will be changed from one degree of glory to another into His likeness. And I get that from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to another into His likeness. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So those are the two assumptions behind these next 12 messages, and it leads to a fourfold goal that I have. Number one, to portray or display for you the pleasures of God that I find in Scripture. In the hopes that, secondly, you will see in these pleasures the worth and the excellency of his soul, so that in the third place you will be changed from one degree to another into the likeness of the Almighty, so that fourthly at home and at work and at school men will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Portraying the pleasures of God in preaching, beholding the glory of God 
in listening, being transformed into the likeness of God by meditation, and displaying the worth of God in the world. That's why I exist. That's what we're about on Sunday morning. I hope that you will support this ministry in prayer because unless the Lord brings His blessing to bear on that fourfold goal, nothing of any consequence will happen. Be earnest in prayer about these messages that the Lord would win people to Himself and establish the saints for His own glory. A word of summary about last week's message, which will lead into today's. Last week, we focused on the pleasure that God has in His Son. In His Son. The most important lesson to learn from last week's message is this. God has been, is now, and always will be exuberantly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. God never has been and never will be lonely. Don't tell children that God created man because he was lonely. That's dead wrong. He has been infinitely, exuberantly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity for all eternity and never has experienced one solitary moment of loneliness. He is happy with no deficiencies in himself at all. You might say that the Son of God is the panorama of the perfections of the Father. Or the Son of God is the landscape in the deity of the excellencies of the Father, so that God the Father has been overflowing with satisfaction and joy as He beholds the radiance of His own glory in the face of His Son from all eternity. It is an insult to the Almighty to say that He is lonely before there was man. There are no deficiencies in God which creation could improve. Creation was the overflow of bounty, not the supply of deficiency. Okay? Let's scratch that if it has ever entered into your curriculum to say such a thing. It's gone forever. We aren't like that. We aren't like that. We come into the world all deficiency. We have to be diapered, fed. We have to be disciplined, sent to classes that we don't like to go to and enter the school of hard knocks. Why? To make up deficiencies in knowledge, to make up deficiencies in bodily coordination and strength, to make up deficiency in manners. We're all deficiency. We need help. God is not like that. He came into being never. God has always been perfect, complete, self-sufficient, and exuberantly happy for all eternity in the fellowship of the Trinity as He beholds His image in His own Son. And that leads then 
to another lesson that we should learn from last week, namely, God never does anything begrudgingly. Everything he does is the overflow of self-sufficient joy. He cannot be coerced, for he is complete in himself. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be cornered. He cannot be backed into a corner where the only thing left for him to do is what he hates to do. He is free to do whatever he pleases. And that brings us to today's message, God's pleasure in all that he does. And today's text, Psalm 135, and I call your attention to it. The psalm begins by calling us to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And then it gives reasons, a list of reasons, beginning in verse 3, for why we should find praise rising in our hearts to this God. For example, verse 3, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. And it gives reasons right on down to verse 6, which is the verse I want us to focus on this morning. Another reason for praise, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. Now that little phrase, whatever the Lord pleases, He does, occurs one other time in the Bible. Psalm 115, verse 3, which says almost the same thing. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. It's the same phrase with the same words, just flip-flopped. He does whatever He pleases. Now, what does that verse teach? What should we learn from those two verses? We should learn that everything God does, He does with delight. God only does what brings him pleasure. He's never backed into a corner so that he has to do what he hates to do. He does what he pleases to do. And therefore, in some sense, he has pleasure in all that he does. There's one other place where the word is used... Uh, more than one, but one I'll refer to. I'm just tracking with this little Hebrew word here, hafetz, which means to take pleasure in or delight in or be pleased by. It's used in Isaiah 46.10 where it says, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my pleasure. It's not often translated that way, but it's the same word that occurs here in Isaiah or in Psalm 135, verse 6, and Psalm 115, verse 3. I will accomplish all my pleasure. In other words, I do what I please to do, and I do everything that gives me pleasure. I accomplish my pleasure. And I think our response to this should be to bow down in praise to the freedom and the sovereignty of God. 
that in his freedom he always acts according to the dictates of his delight. He's never a slave by any forces that come from without. Who has given a gift to God that he should be repaid, Paul says? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. You can't bribe God. He owns you and everything you have. He cannot be constrained or coerced or bribed or boxed in or cornered or trapped. He is free to do everything and anything that he pleases. And it is a glorious picture of God. It is the kind of God that can satisfy the soul. A kind of God you can worship and bow down before who has no frustrated cravings. No unsatisfied longings that he cannot fulfill. It's a glorious picture, but it's fuzzy. It's out of focus. If we were to stop right here, the picture that you have, if you were to buy what I just said, would be an inadequate picture of God. To focus the picture, to get it into focus, what we need to do is ask a question to bring some more biblical data into the picture. Here's the question I think we need to ask. If, according to Psalm 135, verse 6, God does whatever he pleases, then how can he say in Ezekiel 18:32? It doesn't please me when the unbelieving perish. You might want to turn to Ezekiel 18. In verse 30 of Ezekiel 18, God is warning the house of Israel of impending judgment. Judgment that's going to come from him. And so he says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. So you see, God is about to judge an impenitent and rebellious people. He urges them to repent. He says, Repent, turn from all your transgressions. And then at the end of verse 31, he says, Why will you die? O house of Israel, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord. So turn and live. Now that word, I have no pleasure, is exactly the same verb used in Psalm 135, verse 6. It seems like we have a very different picture here. God looks cornered to me in this verse. He looks cornered because he says, I'm going to judge you, but I don't want to judge you. It will bring me no pleasure. It will not please me to judge you. He looks cornered. Like he's got to do something he doesn't want to do. Well, is he free? To do what he pleases, or does he get himself trapped into doing those things which he doesn't 
want to do and like to do and find any pleasure in doing? Is his freedom somehow limited so that he can do what he pleases up to a point, but after that he has to do what somebody else pleases or what he doesn't find any pleasure in doing? You might try to solve this problem by going back to the psalm and saying, oh, there's really no problem because the psalm deals with natural phenomena, rain and wind, not personal phenomena like the death of a person. You see, and they might read verse 7 in Psalm 135 and it says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. You see, Piper, it's just dealing with natural phenomena. It doesn't have anything to do with whether God is pleased that anyone dies. That won't work. It won't work for two reasons. The first reason is that if God controls the wind, which he does, all Jesus had to do was say to the wind, cease, and it ceased. So God could say to any hurricane, any typhoon, any monsoon, any squall, any storm, cease, and it would cease, and therefore Every ship that has sunk in the history of the world in storms, God sank. And they had people on board, most of whom were unbelievers. So much for the objection that this doesn't have to do with people. You can't separate the natural world from the personal world. There's a second reason, though. It, you don't have to draw out silent inferences that are clearly there about the sinking of ships because of wind on the sea. It's all right here explicitly. What is the point of this psalm as you read from verses 6 to 11? Verse 6 says, He does whatever He pleases on earth and in heaven. And then verse 8 goes on to spell it out. He it was who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. Verse 10, who smote many nations and killed mighty kings. It's all right there. He does whatever he pleases. He drowns Egyptian soldiers in the Red Sea. He slays Og and Sihon. He does whatever he pleases, including the execution of unbelievers. So in Ezekiel, it says that God is not pleased with the death of the impenitent. And in Psalm 135, it says that God does whatever he pleases, including the destruction of the Egyptians and the slaying of kings and many nations. Now, before I give you what I have said before, I think is the solution to this, let me make it harder and worse. Many Christians today are satisfied with a cornered God. 
not many Christians fret about an image of God where he seems trapped by circumstance. And so they might say, for example, you are making a mountain out of a mole here, hill here because in verse 6, it's just a figure of speech. He does whatever he pleases. You can't read into that, Piper, all of this emotional content of pleasure and delight. Just, he does whatever he pleases. is just a figure of speech to say that he acts according to his own counsel and wisdom. And so there's really no problem. God is cornered and he is boxed in by his own justice and the sin of man which he did not will. And therefore he must, against his own delight and pleasure, judge men and women. There are two reasons why I don't buy that. One is the same word is used for have pleasure in or be pleased by in Psalm 135.6 and Ezekiel 18.32. The other reason is that there are other texts in the Bible that are even more clear with regard to God's free delight in judgment. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63. Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 63. Moses is speaking. He's warning the people about the judgment that will come from God if they turn from God and rebel and are unbelieving. It is, in fact, what happened that Ezekiel was talking about. But here he puts it in such a stark and incredible way that there is no missing its contrast with Ezekiel 1832. He says in Deuteronomy 28, 63, As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. God will delight in the destruction of rebellious, wicked, impenitent sinners, this verse says. So we're driven back to the problem. Ezekiel 18.32 says, I don't delight in the death of the impenitent. And Deuteronomy 28.63 says, I will indeed delight in destroying the impenitent. Now, tonight I'm going to begin my message with an extended analogy that I have found help in this week of how to conceive of this solution I'm about to give you. So if you want to hear more and some more meat put on the bones, you can show up at 6 o'clock. But here's my solution that I'm going to commend to you. And you've all heard it before if you've been around for a while. It goes like this. The misery and the suffering that judgment brings upon the impenitent 
in and of itself does not delight the heart of God. He is not malicious. He is not a sadist. He is not bloodthirsty so that he sort of vampire-like rubs his hands that he has another victim. That's what Ezekiel 18.32 is warning us not to believe about God. Rather, when he brings judgment upon the impenitent and recalcitrant and unbelieving and wicked, the delight that he takes in that act is delight in the vindication of his justice and his truth and the value of his name, which has been drugged through the dirt by unbelief. God's heart is capable of grieving over the misery and the sin considered in and of itself of any unbelieving lost person, while at the same time rejoicing and exulting exuberantly in the vindication of his righteousness and his name as he destroys them in hell. If that doesn't fit together in your own mind and heart, you're finite and God is infinite. Do not shape God into your limited image. Let the Holy Scriptures stand and may God build His true character in your heart and in your eyes. This is a warning to us now as we close that God cannot be mocked this morning. God cannot be mocked he cannot be trapped. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be cornered. He does what he pleases. Even on the way to Calvary, no man takes my life from me. I go to the cross of my own good pleasure for the joy that is set before me. I embrace the flames and kiss the cross. I'm free. Right at the point of universal history where it looked like God was trapped. Satan had him. <laughs> I've got him. I've got him. He blew him to pieces with his freedom and embraced the cross willingly. Why? Because he loved to do it for you. He delighted to do it. Because in being gracious, he displays the bounty of his grace, which is the overflow of his eternal satisfaction in the beauty of his Son. We don't owe our salvation to anything in us. We owe it to the freedom of God and the overflow of his joy that carried him along the Calvary Road. And so I summon you to join me in worshiping Him and loving Him and trusting Him and obeying Him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. For our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. Let's stand for prayer.
Almighty God and merciful Heavenly Father, we praise you together for your everlasting happiness in the fellowship of the Trinity. That you are infinitely exuberant in your deity. That you are satisfied with the panorama of your own perfections reflected in the glory and radiance of your Son. We praise you that you are free and sovereign in your own self-sufficiency and cannot be bribed or coerced because of some deficiency or craving in your heart. We praise you that your plan and your counsel are governed not by our will, but by your good pleasure. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, both now and forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.